Today on Way Too Interested, we're talking fly fishing. That's right, a river runs through it. <laughs> okay, just just uh, here, play the theme song. So your hobby went from borderline to totally obsessive. Gavin's gonna find out how you got way too interested. Way too interested. Welcome, everybody, to Way Too Interested. My name is Gavin Purcell, and this is the show where I talk to interesting people, and we ask them about things that they are semi-obsessed with, and then the two of us talk to an expert on that subject matter. It's a deep dive on creativity, discovery, and all sorts of other fun things. Um, Today, I've got a great guest, Paul Bay. He is a comedian and a writer and a really interesting guy. I knew him... I really don't know him that well, but I got to know him a little bit on Twitter, and he's really another really good Twitter user, um, at Paul Bay, I think at Mr. Paul Bay. Hold on one second, I'm going to check that. Yes, Mr. Paul Bay, at Mr. Paul Bay. This is a great episode because uh, we talk a little bit about fly fishing, but also he's got some really great stories and a great kind of like origin story himself, so I hope you enjoy it. We're going to talk a little bit later with our expert, who is a uh, fly fishing master, professor, and really interesting guy as well. So take a listen. Welcome, Paul, to uh, Way Too Interested. Thanks so much for being here. Um, I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Gavin. I've been looking forward to this. First, before we get started, can you give me a little bit about your backstory and kind of where you come from? I mean, I know now you're a writer in Hollywood and you've done some acting, but like, where did you get started and kind of what took you on this creative journey? Oh, you knew about the acting. You looked at the two... That's, you got an IMDb digging. page, man. You got an IMDb page. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, the, the the famous uh, fist bump in the Wesley Snipes movie. Uh, we'll talk about <laughs> that sometime. But uh, yeah, I, I was born in Korea and then moved to uh, Canada, just outside Toronto, in a small town called what? Small town at the time named Mississauga. When I was two years old, uh, I was sick of the Korean uh, the absence of the stand up scene in Korea. So we we, <laughs> we moved to, we moved to Canada. I was a teacher, and then I, I started doing stand up comedy. Um, at the urging of a student and my parents, which is weird. Oh, fun. Um, yeah. Did that for 12 years and, and some sketch comedy on the side. And then uh, I realized I have to make a living at some point and make some money. Uh, it's, it's hard to do in Canada as a stand-up comic uh, unless you make it, unless you're the, like that 1.1% of the lucky ones. Yeah. Um, you're Jim Carrey, unless you're Jim Carrey. Yeah, exactly. Right? Uh, yeah. You have to go to the States <laughs> to do that unless you're a Brent Butt, who's a, who's a superstar. And then uh, I, I got lucky at one point and started a, a fiction podcast called The Black Tapes. And mm-hmm. I've been a screenwriter for a while with zero people interested in me as a screenwriter. <laughs> and so we turned my screenplay idea into a podcast with my friend Terry Miles. And that's for the purpose of getting us representation and all that kind of stuff. And, and, it, and it worked out. Uh, we're very lucky we came out early and strong. That's awesome. Hey, I want to dig into one thing because I'm really curious. So I, I spent a year teaching English in Korea. So I spent a year in Korea in about 1998, I guess. I've never thought about that before, but is there no stand-up in Korea? Is that not a thing? Do people not do stand-up comedy there? Oh, dude, there's not even a word for stand-up comedy in Korea. The, the no closest thing we have is those entertainers, the funny entertainers yeah. and hosts on TV. Yeah, yeah, And sure. the English word for that is, uh, the term for that is gag man. Right. In 2002, when I was in Toronto doing um, uh, Yuck Yucks stuff uh, for the cl- comedy club there, I visited my grandmother who speaks yeah. only Korean. And my cousin was there to translate between us because my Korean sucks. And she's like, I could see her saying, what's he doing here right now? Why isn't he teaching? <laughs> and my, my cousin, who's, you know, he speaks Korean better than me, but it's not great. And he's explaining, to, we're at a Japanese restaurant, and he's explaining to her in front of all my relatives, oh, in his broken Korean, Paul quit teaching, and now he's a comedian. She didn't understand what that meant because there's no term. And he's trying to explain. I'm going to tell her, man, tell her. 
And he's like, okay, uh, he goes from town to town making people laugh. And I'm sitting there smiling like an idiot. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> and she stares at me and starts throwing these chopsticks at my head. She's right across from me. Oh and you my know that God. little ceramic chop chopstick holder? She yeah, threw that sure. in my head and she missed me, hit the bench behind me. <laughs> oh my and God. her son, my uncle, he's calming her down in, in his fluent cream. He's like, what's going on? What's going And they all start laughing when she starts explaining. And she's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing shame to the family. I'm, I'm a failure. Uh, I don't deserve to be. What did she think be... you were doing? What did she, she thought think I was, was a circus clown. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against circus clowns. That's the closest <laughs> word? That's the closest word in Korean? That's the, closest, <laughs> that's the closest thing she could think of because she remembers seeing circuses during occupied Korea when the, when the oh U.S. Army God. brought over that's circus incredible. performers. So what the hell? Anyways, so that's 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 what. Uh, no slight to circus performers, but no, you know, I, I was supposed to go to law school and then yes. have a quick law school into teaching, which she wasn't really crazy about. And then to yeah. go from that to circus, she's ready to kill her grandson <laughs> and bury oh my, my body somewhere in an unmarked grave. Oh my grave. lord, that's incredible! What a, what a crazy story. I, I I have to say, like I loved my time when I was in Korea, but it's like it's just you know all cultures are different. They have different experiences about things, and actually, I do remember. When I was there, the presenter thing is a real thing. Obviously, show business is a big deal over there, especially with Korean dramas. But I've never thought about that before. The comedy is something that's so different. And maybe it's really Western, right? Like, it definitely is like a, you know, obviously, there's a great scene in the UK and coming out of Scotland and, and that kind of stuff. And the States has had a strong comedy scene. But I've never thought about, like, other cultures in comedy. Maybe it's more prevalent in Western culture than it is in Eastern. Because even in Japan, I know they have... There's a very famous Japanese show called Gaki no Sukai, which is what the Silent Library series was based on. Oh. And there, there are like these sketch comedians who are really big. It's hard to describe. It's not the same kind of sketch as it is in America. Anyway, I had never really thought about that before, but maybe that kind of comedy is more of a Western thing than a, than a worldwide thing. Yeah, I, 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 uh, my friend Cliff Nestrov has a, has a series of uh, best-selling books about the history of Western stand-up comedy. Uh, and they're all Interesting. great. And uh, uh, I seem to recall just when just from talking to him because he's from Vancouver originally. We used to be buddies, and talking about how it's possible that you could make a you could trace the the lineage of stand up comedy back to political oration, where people would oh interesting you know, heckle in Parliament, and you know just it just became that kind of thing. And then you know anyone who had the wit and wherewithal to carry on a monologue for half an hour and get at people's attention that would translate right away to political power. Uh, right. Oh, sure. Uh, I think I think the idea of one person standing there who's just a commoner and, and trying to get the crowd you know, <laughs> roused wasn't going to work. So we would have to couch it in something called pansori, which is an old, old folk tradition of one singer telling an awful story with a drummer behind him or her pounding yep. a drum and telling old folk tales. Uh, sometimes right. with a little humor, ironic humor, mostly in tragedy. But that's the closest thing we would have to like a, a single orator holding an huh. audience. Without music. Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, I've never thought of that before. Yeah. yeah. So, so the idea, and then um, we're storytellers by nature. I, I call it creating yeah. the Irish of Asia. You've been there. Yeah. You know how much we drink. And so we would yeah, be there. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and just the alcohol, the stories pouring out of us, probably entrenched in the, our history of suffering and we yeah. and, and occupation. And we would have to get those stories out anyways. Uh, yeah, that and we, we seem to have found a way through uh, TV and film and song. Huh. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I never, I, I would just a side quick note the drinking thing was on a different level than I was expecting when I lived there. It is intense. Um, we had a really fun time though. Okay, let's go back to your podcast. So you you come to Narrative Podcast. And one of the things I think it's interesting about Narrative Podcast is 
it's a really different medium, right? I mean, I guess it's not a different, it's been done before. It's basically kind of radio, right? It's, it's like the old radio serials in an interesting way. What drew you to that other than the fact that like it was a way to translate your scripts and to try to get noticed? Was there something special about that medium that you liked? We liked that there wasn't much out there in terms of in the podcast form. We knew there was a lot of mm. audio drama, of course, and BBC was still yeah. pumping them out uh, on their on their radio stations. And they're really popular. They're beautiful productions. Uh, I, yeah. I'm a little upset that a lot of people forget that BBC has amazing audio drama productions. Uh, I saw an article recently about some American company putting out a 90-minute audio drama saying as if it's the first time it's a movie for your ears. And I'm like, the BBC has been doing this for, for decades. Which is the one, oh, the, they do a really great Hitchhikers one, Hitchhikers Guide to the Galaxy yes, one, which I've yeah. heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and once a year, I still listen to their, you know, their Solaris adaptation, the audio drive, one of the most yep. beautiful things I've ever heard. I've always liked that idea of that, even though I didn't listen to a lot of it myself. Of course, I listened to War of the Worlds in snippets in the documentary about the War of the Worlds and the effect of that. But Terry really turned, my partner Terry Miles really turned me on to the idea of making uh, something like War of the Worlds in mm -hmm. podcast format where we pretend it's real. This paranormal researcher who doesn't believe in ghosts, but there's a series of black tapes. And to this day, we still get emails that we have to field about, you know, can I contact Dr. Strand? I have a haunted house <laughs> or there's a demon in my family. And, and I don't know whether they're playing with me and they like just, be, you know, it's, it's like cosplay for them or if I have to answer seriously. And so, uh, it, it, it's, it's always a fine line that we're treading. We have to get the actors involved. You know, if you want to have fun, let's do this. Uh, yeah. We get paid if we make money, but you know, right now, are, are you interested in? And so that's how it happened. And then when Serial broke out, that gave us the form. When Sarah Koenig was a journalist who maybe got too involved in the story herself, and we thought, yep. "There's our protagonist. Let's in insert yep. her." And uh, it was it was a way to sort of take our listeners on a journey through the eyes of the journalist, while you know, sort of, we're supposed to do a commentary on journalism itself, but we got away from that because we're just having too much fun scaring people. I, one of the things that's so cool about you, I think you've heard this podcast, but like part of what I'm trying to do is explore people's like walks down certain lanes in their brains. You know what I mean? To try to kind of explore different things. And one of the really interesting things about doing something like that is you do discover different things about it. Like you might've had an idea, but then it kind of opens up in front of you, right? Which is kind of what storytelling and writing sometimes is, is like, there are, certain, there are certain writers, and I will say that certain writers are so good at plotting everything out and just kind of making it that way, and they know what they're doing, and they can churn stuff out. That's not really how I am creatively. I kind of try to get a structure, and then stuff will pop up over time, and I kind of follow it along, and that's kind of what the podcast is about. Like, do you have experiences like that, or which way do you kind of, how do you lean creatively? Are you like a, what are they called, a plotter or a pantser? Do you know that phrase? Have you ever heard this before? No. A plotter, is, is, a, a plotter is somebody when you're writing who write, who plots the whole book out, and a pantser is somebody who goes fully by the seat of their pants and they just go and they don't even plan anything out. They just go. Sorry, I, well, I, didn't, I didn't hear the word pantser. So I thought, I yeah, thought yeah, it was yeah. like something else. No, no, I've heard that. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm a bit of a plotter. In a, uh, like I, I need to do outlines. I need to know where I'm going. I need to know where it's headed. But mm -hmm. then I'm a pantser in terms of the sense that every time I've done that, at the midpoint, it's changed completely. The story mm -hmm. has changed. It's not, it's not going where I thought it was going to go because the story wants to be something else. The story, yep. and, I, and I've talked to a lot of writers and they're, they're like, that's a common thing. Because I thought I lacked discipline yep. and I've always prided myself on being a very disciplined person. And they're like, no, 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 you're not weird. That's normal. And that's a healthy way to write. Uh, not the only yeah. way to write, but it's, it's, it's not abnormal. It's, it's way within the way things should be for a lot of people. I think that's one of the things that uh, is important to me about life too, right? Is that like, it goes back to your grandmother and, and my grandmother as well. Like anybody kind of from those older generations who like, were like, hey, here's your life. It's got to go down this pathway like 
at the midpoint of life, stuff changes too, right? Like, you know, at the midpoint of my life, I think I was like down a pathway where I was going to be like working on an Entertainment Tonight type show. And I was like, this is definitely not what I want to do. And I pivoted out of it. But like, it does feel like part of it is staying open to that sort of thing. No, it is. And I didn't, it took me a while to learn that because I, I, you know, I, I was headed towards law school and then my cousin became a lawyer. Uh, he graduated top of his class and he called me right away and said, uh, you still want to be a lawyer? I'm like, yeah. He goes, <laughs> and he told me his experience. He goes, why? I go, I want to change the world, man. He goes, well, then don't be a corporate lawyer. And I'm like, yeah. I was so young. And like, well, and he told me all about it. I'm like, oh, that's not what I want. Uh, he goes, you can change the world, but it's going to take a lot of work for you to get to the position to change anything. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. okay. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm too lazy for that. Uh, yeah. So I went to study theology because I was a new evangelical Christian. Uh, and then uh, uh, at some point, I, I thought, I don't want to be in the, doing pastoral work. So I became mm -hmm. a high school English teacher because I like talking about literature. I like working with young people. And then uh, something weird happened. Uh, in 95 uh, to 97, I went through a divorce. But just before then, another older teacher, and I'm, I've always looked to older people in whatever field I'm in. I always sought out the older, happy people. That's a great, that is great advice, by the way. Older, no, happy people. That's yeah, an amazing piece of advice. Yeah, you don't want the power players. You want the ones who seem happy and content and just mm -hmm. in their own pocket. And I've got yep. to figure out how they got into that pocket. And so uh, John Gibson, physics teacher, you know, he, he sort of took me under his wing. I went camping with him and the, the boys for a while. And then after, I guess he'd heard about my impending divorce. And he goes, I'm going to take you fly fishing. I'm like, oh, I'm not a big fisherman guy. And he's like, I want, I want to take you. I think you get it. And I was so clumsy at first, and I, I was just awful. I took a friend, another guy, Reed Almond. Uh, we, we went out, and we both learned fly fishing at the same time. Even though Reed's a fisherman, we, he never really fly fished. And it's, it's, it, was, it was fascinating. And then I got into it, and I started going on my own on these five-day trips to go fly fishing. And years later, I would tell him, like, well, how did you know I would, I would love fly fishing? And he goes, I just thought you'd get it because you were so focused on getting somewhere all this time. I, I needed you to learn. I thought you would get being in a place in one time and just absorbing, losing yourself in it and just focusing on a moment and swerving, just following a river, following wherever and just going where things are supposed to go. And so my stories now go where they're supposed to go. My life ended up going where it's supposed to go. But I'd resist it at first. But then I realized, you know what? There's a way to be in it. And accept things. And when I failed, because you know, I went down, NBC invited me down in, in 2004 to do stand-up comedy, to do the Tonight Show, all that kind of stuff. And I shit the bed on a comedy night in Scott Ackerman's room called M Bar, Death Ray Comedy oh, sure. Hour for the, for yeah, the old yeah. school comedy fans down there. Yeah. And everyone, the big hitters, Patton Oswald, everyone was there and they saw me stink up the stage. I read a review about my stinky set. And apparently the agents that wanted to meet me, they were in the audience. They wouldn't return my calls afterwards. Oh, no. Um, I didn't get the Tonight Show. I didn't get anything. I came back up to Vancouver with my tail between my legs and, you know, did other stuff. I became a better comedian. But I sort of gave up on my dreams of being a, a Hollywood writer. And then mm. I learned to sort of be in the river, just be in the moment. And so I started writing for fun. Not think it's going to go anywhere. And then the black tapes happened and all the stuff that I wanted years ago started happening. Because I think I, I give off a vibe now which is a true vibe that I just enjoy where I am and I'm in my pocket. That's an incredible story. I, I also feel getting in the pocket is something that's so important for kind of like any creative endeavor. That was also a good transition to get into what we're going to talk about here. So Paul, can you tell me, uh, state your name and tell me what you're way too interested in? Uh, my name is Paul Bay and I am way too interested in fly fishing. Okay, so we're going to talk to our expert in just a second here. I find fly fishing interesting too. I've gone a couple times. I'm definitely not an expert. My dad tried to get me into it when I was younger, and I think I got it 
but not 100% got it. I, I will say my biggest experience with fly fishing is um, the movie A River Runs Through It, which made a giant impact on me, which made me want to go fly fishing a lot more, and I have yet to do that. Um, I think I also want to move to Montana at some point. But tell me where where you found it. I mean, I just heard that little story about finding it there, but like, what is it about it that's so interesting to you? Um, I, I noticed, and I've taken people with me who I thought could use it and would do for them what it did for me. You fly fish for a day, especially on a river. For, for me, mentally, I love fishing rivers. I love wading rivers. It feels like I'm hunting, but not mm. really, because I don't really expect anything. Um, I remember C.S. Lewis talking about being surprised by joy. You look for grace, you can't really find it, but then it sort of happens to you. And you're surprised mm -hmm. by uh, life's bounty, in, in, in a sense. And so, so when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm fishing, I forget my watch. I notice, like I start, I sort of lose myself. I remember every moment in the river. I remember catching things. I remember uh, being disappointed, luring things towards my fly. And then the sun starts to go down. And I lost total track of time. But that mm -hmm. day seemed like a year in a good way. Right. Like I, I, it seems to slow down time while right. being in that moment, uh, if, right. if that makes any sense at all. So that, no, that's that makes a lot of sense. That, that's what it does for me. But, but lake fishing is another story for me because there's so much science involved that I don't understand. And I get skunked so often. So I try to stick to river fishing, uh, preferably dry fishing. I heard, I heard uh, an interview with Jimmy Kimmel says he only dry flies. And I, I totally get If I had the money to only dry fly and to travel to places where there's only dry fly fishing, I would, I would love that. Just really quickly, what is dry fly fishing for somebody that doesn't know what it is? Well, things like mayflies, they float on the surface. Uh, you, you, right. you see a hatch and all the insects are in there. You, they're usually, during the hatch, it's like a, it's a magical hour. It's usually only an hour in my experience. You see the mayflies hatch all around you. You match your fly to whatever insect that you think, and you see the fish feed on the surface. It's really exciting during that time. And you try to lure them onto your, you try to catch them with that. Where, where wet fly is, I think, I think that it comprises maybe 90% of fishing, where most fish usually fish eat unseen, like all day, right. all night, under the water. Like really under the deep. water, yeah. Uh, we're going to move into, I'm, we'll go to a break and we're going to come back right with, we stands ready to chat with us. So get your questions ready. Um, and we'll be right back after this break with Stan, our uh, fly fishing expert. Way too interested. All right, we'll be right back with our expert. But first, as always, I want to suggest something for y'all to listen to or to read in between the, the uh, interviews here. Um, today, I've got a really fun podcast that I really love and I think you'll love too, as long as you're probably, if you're born in a certain amount of time, uh, there's a guy named Rob Pavrila who's making a podcast called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. I don't know how to describe this other than like these are audio essays about particular songs from the 90s. And, and Rob does such an amazing job of bringing his own personality into it. And they're really remarkable. I definitely suggest you listen to the Red Hot Chili Peppers episode, which kind of goes into a really deep dive on how Fishbone kind of got um, pushed out by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, maybe, or at least they didn't get recognized in the same way. Anyway, if you were into 90 music, 90s music at all, it's definitely worth a listen. Take a listen to it. It's called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. Okay, let's get back to our guest expert here. Today, we are joined by Stan Ulansky. Stan is a professor emeritus of geology and environmental science at James Madison University. And more importantly, he wrote the book, The Science of Fly Fishing. So Stan is a bona fide uh, fly fishing expert. Um, he's got a lot of interesting things to say, and Paul got some good questions in. So take a listen. Okay, we're back. Uh, so Stan, thanks so much for being here. Tell me a little bit about how you found uh, fly fishing. 
Uh, well, let me put it this way. I've always been interested in fishing. Growing up, my dad uh, took me to the Catskills to go fishing. He wasn't fly fishing at that time. But uh, as I got more into fishing, I decided, well, okay, besides learning how to surf fish and bait cast, I think fly fishing is another way to approach the uh, sport. And so I got into it, and the more I got into it, the more I, I thought about the science behind it. Uh, and in fact, there's quite a bit of science behind fly fishing. So again, it was an evolutionary type of process. Are you a scientist or an academic by nature? Like what's your, what's your day job? Uh, well, I'm retired right now, but for about 40 years, I was a professor at a university in Virginia uh, with a background in meteorology and oceanography. In fact, I actually developed a one-credit course uh, on the science of fly fishing, which again, integrated recreational activity as well as the science aspect of it. That's awesome. Okay. All right, Paul. So I know you've got a bunch of questions. I've got questions as well, but. Oh, hi, Stan. Thanks for, uh, a ple- hey, uh, thanks for doing this. A uh, pleasure meeting you. I-, I finally get to pick the brain of an expert fly for sure. sure. Um, well, I'm not an expert, but I'd be glad to help. I, think I it's don't fun. know uh, how familiar you are with, uh, uh, I'm from British Columbia and we have an area in the interior called the Kamloops and we have uh, these large seven pounders called Kamloops trout, uh, rainbow trout in our lakes. And they, they're, they're aggressive. They take a chronomid and they'll take, take it to the end of your reel. I have never experienced that. I experienced bull trout that have pulled my rod down and it's no fun at all. So I, I, I was telling uh, Gavin, I prefer fishing streams, especially I, I, I prefer fishing um, dry flies because it's fun for me. I'm not a scientist, but I'll be out in the Kamloops lakes and I'll see people around me in their belly boats catching fish and I'll see their rod bend almost to breaking. And I'm always like, how do they do that? How do they find the depth? How do they find the right? Fl- I, don't, I can't see underwater. I don't know what they're I don't know how they're catching them. I know it's chironomids, but no one, I'm, I'm afraid to ask people what depth are you doing? You know, I feel it rude to do that. Uh, so what's the secret to catching deep fish on a wet line? I've never understood that. Well, I don't know if there's any major secret uh, about it, but obviously, if, let's say your current is flowing really, really fast. The trout are going to be hunkering down. They're not going to fight that current anyway. So what you have to do is you've got to get the fly down to where the trout is. I mean, that kind of makes common sense. And the way you can do it is by using a weighted fly, let's say a nymph, you're familiar with those, or a uh, sinking tip type of line. And again, it's kind of guessing where it is, where the fish are to begin with. Uh, Because are they holding mid-depth or they're holding near the bottom? And again, what they're trying to do is explore uh, various depths and hope uh, that they find the right depth of where the fish is. Are there indicators on the surface of what, what stage the insects are in? Or is that guessing too? Obviously, if there's a hatch, you can determine what type of insects that they are. Uh, but if the fish aren't rising to those insects, then that's not a major food item for them. And in that case, they may be feeding on nymphs on the bottom. And therefore, you've got to adjust for that. So if you don't see rises, therefore, fishing a dry fly is not going to work. Uh, In fact, the trout is ignoring that type of thing. You can often determine what the fish is feeding upon by looking at the rise. If, for example, you see the dorsal fin or the tail fin and not the head, then that's an indication that the trout is looking down and not looking up. I've never heard that. That's fascinating. Yes. It's mostly in relatively shallow water, but it's a type of rise where, again, if you see the dorsal fin, the back fin, the tail fin, 
think about it, the fish is bowed over and it's looking down for nymphs. Now, if you see the head come on up, then obviously it's feeding on the surface. So again, observation is really a key to it. And that's where it comes to science comes in. Scientists are observers and that's where you've got to, to look at. So again, what I often tell people when they go to a stream, everybody wants to go fishing right away. Oh, I got to get that fly out there. Sit down, relax, take a deep breath, see what the river is offering up. You know, the, the old concept of reading the water, seeing, understanding what the water is offering up at that time. I'm going to use that advice for fishing and for writing. <laughs> Stan, that, uh, one thing I want to do is take one quick step back. So I told Paul uh, I've done maybe, tw I've gone twice. Like, what is the for fly fishing in your mind over other types of fishing? Uh, again, I've done all types of fishing. And I won't tell someone, hey, fly fishing is the only way to fish. Of course, it's not. But I think fly fishing brings you closer to nature. In one of the ways it brings you closer to nature is that you're trying to imitate what a fish will eat by using a fly. A fly is an imitation of what a trout mm. will eat. So in that case, a little bit of the science comes in in the study of entomology, okay? Study of insects. What are the life cycles of the insects? What are the trout feeding upon on the insects? So you've got that part. The other part of fly fishing is that it, it is much more actively, you're much more actively involved. Uh, you're constantly changing the position of your line in the stream, as you know, mending. Uh, you're constantly aware of how the currents are changing. You're constantly aware of where to place the fly is. So I guess there's a greater closeness to nature than the other aspects of fishing. Okay, that's awesome. I was going to say also, um, the other thing, Stan, I wanted to ask you about is how do you recommend somebody start off fly fishing? That's what I'm curious about. Like, what's your what's your take on the beginning point of it? And what's the first step somebody can take to kind of start doing it? Okay, I, I think the most important thing is to take a lesson. All right, mm. learn how to fly cast. Nothing could be more frustrating than seeing a fish there that people are catching and you're not catching because you can't cast. So I recommend people take a, a lesson or two. It's worth it. If you have a friend that's a fly angler, buttonhole him, have him learn how to cast. So the first thing would be to learn how to cast. Don't even think about going to a stream. Hmm. Learn how to cast on the land first. Is there a secret to the cast? I know that's the thing people talk about a lot with fly fishing, right? Is there's the movement of the cast. And also speaking of the science, like there's a lot of actual science in the cast, I think as well, right? When you think about oh. physics and you think about the way you have to lay the line back out, like, so Abs what's absolutely. the secret to a good cast? What's the secret? There's really no one secret, but I, but I would say timing. That's the key point because the cast involves two components. Uh, as Paul knows, a back cast and a forward cast. And so as I tell people, the students that I have taught casting about, this is where the timing comes in, when to come forward, when to come back. So it's like anything else. It's, uh, if you're in a sport, timing is critical. And in the casting, timing is probably the most critical component. And Paul, how's your cast? Do you feel like you've got it down? Uh, it took me a while to learn. <laughs> There's always stuff to learn. Like I'm still now, I'm at the point where I'm learning my loop cast where the overhanging branches are a bit too much and I'd have to loop right. it in the river. 
But uh, I always heard the term, let the raw do the work. I never understood what that meant. But when I, then I finally learned, oh, you load the rod and let the weight of the rod do the work. Like let the bending provide the power going forward. It reminded me of learning like a baseball swing or a golf, especially a golf swing, where you, you mm. load up that forehand. It really reminded me of that, a gentler form of that. My, my trouble was once I learned let the rod do the work, I became a gear hog. I started buying different weights of rods. I, I started the, for every different situation. I spent so much money. My wife, the woman who's my wife now, our first year of going out on my birthday, she got me a beautiful five-weight Ross reel. This gorgeous one. She did some research. What would Paul like? What fits his rod? And she got me that. I'm like, oh, this is the woman. And I just became so obsessed with gear that I forgot I forgot what I was actually doing out there. Uh, I was catching nothing, but I was—I looked great doing it. <laughs> well, that's half the battle, right? Well, it, that's half the fun. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'll go out sometimes and just practice casting because I just like the idea of casting. And there are many, as Paul was pointing out, there are many different uh, types of casts. Uh, there's a roll cast. There's a one, as he pointed out, if you have vegetation behind you, you can increase line speed by double hauling type of thing. So these are all steps that, if a person gets interested in fly fishing, we'll learn with time. But the basics is still learning the fundamentals of just making one cast. If you learn that one basic fundamental of cast, you can cover 30, 40, 50% of situations that occur. Going back to the gear question, how important is gear? Like, I've had that experience with not just fishing, but other things, right? Like, podcasting is a good example, right? You're like, oh, I've got to have the best this, i got to have the best that. <laughs> And truthfully, what you have to focus on is your craft, right? Or kind of make the thing better. Does gear matter at all? Like, can you fly fish with the most basic of stuff? Or do you, is there a level you should get to make it okay? I'm of the opinion that gear in fly fishing is completely overpriced compared to other gear. And, and I don't really know why. And maybe it goes back years and years that fly fishing was considered an elite snobbery mm -hmm. activity. And so, you know, where you have a bamboo rod now will cost you over $1,000. I mean, come on, $1,000 for a piece of basically a toy. Okay. What I recommend <laughs> people do, do is start basic. Don't spend a lot of money on gear. You know, go to Orvis, one of the shops, get a, a basic uh, rod, reel, line. They come together, combo, and have some fun. Then as you get interested, then you can ratchet up a little bit. And it does increase a little bit. Better rods bend better, and they cast better. But for the beginners, no, don't spend the money. I, I also feel like I have to ask, I just this just came to me, and I realized I have to ask probably both of you. I'll start with you, Stan. You got to give me your best fishing story, or your best, your best, like, let's say your best missed fish. You got one of those? I'm sure there's got to be one in your brain that you remember of a fish that you missed that you thought we, you were going to land? Oof. Well, there's so many that I've missed, uh, to be <laughs> honest with you, that I, I don't even know where to begin on that. As I was telling uh, uh, Paul, uh, we were discussing the different types of trout, uh, particularly along the East Coast, and I was mentioning that brown trout are really kind of tough to catch uh, because they will often be found in cover, and cover means things where they can get protection from predators. And that could be uh, logs and so forth. And I, I saw one rising, and it was a nice fish. You know, you could see, kind of get an idea of the size of them. And I made a cast, and the cast, and the cast. Basically ignored it over and over again. 
Uh, and part of it was, again, trout can be pretty selective in their feeding habits. So, again, it's not that I hook one. It's just that I missed one. And that's pretty common. Paul, what about you? Is there, you have, do you have a memory of one of those? Uh, it's not so much, though. The, uh, like Stan, I've, I've missed so many. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to pick on one, but I, I do have one experience of the one I chased. And when I was a teacher, every spring break, I had a week or sorry, two weeks. So I would go by myself camping in the, uh, uh redwoods in, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Northern California. I drive by myself, you know, just take time to five days in the woods. And I, I had a destination, a Smith river in California. They called it the jewel of California. It was the only river where natural steelhead would return every spring. And so I went hunting for those. I always got skunked. <laughs> and then one one spring, I decided, you know, I'm going to go to this town, Redding, where, where the Sacramento River goes through. I heard it's a great destination for it. It's got mm -hmm. a world famous fly shop right off the highway there. So I went there. Uh, I went into the fly shop and, and then the, guy, the guy said, the guide said, uh, did you do a hand drawn map for me? Where to fish? He kept looking over his shoulder and he goes, oh, man, if I if I didn't have to work today, I'd come out for free and, and guide you. And so I left. I thought, well, that's really friendly of this guy. So it was a good first impression. I'm in Redding, California, remember? I go to the site he sent me to, and I look, and I'm, you know, I got skunked again. I go back to my car, abandoned parking lot, but now there's a pickup truck next to my car with three grizzled guys. They look like rednecks, mirrored sunglasses, not smiling. Oh, I man. nodded at them. I thought, oh, shit. They're, I'm going to get beat <laughs> up here. I don't know. I, I'm the only Asian guy I've seen for like a week. Uh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and I'm packing my stuff uh, slowly because I don't want to look scared. And then they start asking me questions and they told me, you know, all these things. And then, and they go, one of the, and we get along. And then one of the guys says, what are you doing for dinner tonight? I'm like, uh, <laughs> I, I just told him, I don't know. And he goes, are you married? All these weird questions. And they figured out I was alone. Gives me his business card for the seafood restaurant and goes, go there. Tell them I sent you. I'm like, okay, that was weird. I mean, we had, anyways, we were laughing. I gave them some beers at night. I decided to go into town looking for this place. I find it a fish place. I go in, the whole place stops and turns towards me. It's like out of an Eddie Murphy movie. <laughs> I'm the one non-white guy. I walk in, everyone stares. And the woman at the front goes, can I help you? I'm like really salty. And I go in, I'm like, hey, he sent me. She goes, what? And I give her the card. She inspected. She goes, how do you know him? And I said, I, I, I saw him on the river. We were fishing. She goes, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, have a seat. I'll take care of you. So I sit down. She brings me this, this dish. It's the most expensive dish in the restaurant that they offer. Wow. Everything. So, I mean, and these people are super friendly to me, asking me questions. And I leave and I try to leave a tip. And she goes, no, 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 we, your money's no good here. And I left. Anyways, the whole week in Reading was like that. And I, I wrote the mayor a letter saying, I'm a divorced guy. I came down here to heal. Your town is full of the, I don't know what you're doing here, but your town is the friendliest, most beautiful people I've ever met in my life. To this day, they're the friendliest people I've ever met in my life. And it's not a fishing story, but I went looking for fish at a time when I needed fellowship. And I found that from every single person once they heard I was a fisherman. Yeah, well, that's so cool about being a fisherman, right? It's like a lot of things when you be part of something, you feel like you're part of a, a group. Paul, do you have any other questions? I'm sorry, I've been, I've got lost, I got track, uh, lost track there a bit. <laughs> I, I did have one question, uh, Stan. I've noticed, like uh, during, like for example, a mayfly hatch. Uh, I fish a place called the Skagit River regularly, and it's it's famous for its nightly mayfly hatches. And I've yeah. always wondered, there's so many mayflies in the air and on the water. The fish are feeding like crazy. What fly do I present? Do I find, do I find the one that's exactly like the things in the air? Or do I try to get a juicier looking version of what's in the air? Or like, I've always wondered, like out of the hundreds landing on the water, what will make them take mine more than the others? 
most people use three criteria in picking out a fly. And, and the idea is uh, matching the size, the shape, and the color. I, I won't go into which is the more, most important, probably size and shape more than color. So what some people do, again, and this is what I advise people to do before they even cast, see if you can catch something, uh, an insect that is. Take a look at it and then go through your fly box and see how close can you match that insect because that's what they're feeding upon. Uh, so you might have to increase your size from uh, a 14 to a 10 or something like that. Uh, that's not a great, great deal difference, as you know, but that can make a subtle difference in terms of the, the trout themselves because they are being selected in terms of what is hatching, and that's the mm -hmm. key. Now, there are times when you can use an imitation or an attractor, and they can be pretty, pretty successful. Uh, but most people will try to, again, match what they see out there. Can I, can I ask a quick follow up on that, Stan? Yeah. You say that trout know what's hatching. So that means that like if uh, I threw out something that was slightly different, they're not going to go for that because they're aware of what's happening in the ecosystem at that time? Or is it just literally that they won't go for things that look different than the majority of, of, other, of other bugs? Again, majority opinion goes that if they're feeding on something, okay, they are focused on what they are being able to see and will ignore anything else. So the best thing to do is try to catch something in the net or something, pick it up from the water and see what it is and then try to match that type of situation. Mm -hmm. Now, if there's nothing hatching, then it becomes kind of a guessing game as to terms of what type of fly to use. And some people use, again, what's called an attractor. Attractor is really nothing in nature what a bug would look like. It could be pretty gaudy in color and all flashy and so forth. But that's where the name attractor comes. Maybe again, to again, get the fish to strike just out of uh, anger or whatever, rather than hunger. Is there a time of day that's best for fly fishing? Is it always around sun up and sundown? Is it the same as regular fishing? Yeah, it's basically when the hatches are in the evening. But again, there's yeah. no hard and fast rule to that type of situation. It depends upon the stream, depends upon the time of the year depends upon the insects, there's so many variables. And again, this is what makes fly fishing interesting, is that a particular fly that, and again, I'll use my own area around in the East Coast, uh, we have different hatches that occur throughout the spring and the summertime. So you have a fly that worked, let's say, well in April, okay, right? Because that's what was hatching. Comes May or June, that same fly may not work because there are different hatches. So again, this is where adaptation comes into play. Paul, you got anything else? Yeah, I've always wondered, Stan, because um, I'm, again, I hit this point because it's embarrassing, but I'm an awful lake no. fisher, except when the things are hatching on the surface. I'm okay then. But it, I've often seen, I remember this one guy telling me you use a flasher pattern. So I had like, you know, a flashy, you know, yeah. and I had a heavy line and right? I'm in my belly boat. So I'm trying to troll it. But if I'm trying to imitate like a, a, like a small minnow type of thing, and it was a minnow pattern, I don't know how minnows swim. Like, do I have to jerk it underwater? If I jerk it, it's going to go higher in the, like, I, I feel like I'm not imitating a minnow. Yeah, you were fishing from a boat, you said? Uh, a belly boat, so going really slow with, with my feet paddling. Oh, okay, 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 yeah. Well, again, uh, no hard and fast rules, but if you're going to fish, let's say, a minnow or imitate a minnow, you're fishing a streamer, you know, those kind of things. And therefore, you want to get it down. I will use a sinking tip line to get it down. 
And then, because if you ever watch a minnow swim or being chased, they kind of have jerky motions. So what you want to do is strip the line a little bit at a time. Uh, yes, it's going to raise it up a little bit, but that's okay. Just strip it, let it sink back down, strip it again, let it sink back down. And it's imitating, again, a minnow or a bait fish that is fleeing away from a potential predator. Uh, you see that all the time. So you, that's the whole key. And that takes, that takes just practice, you know, uh, to get the right kind of feel to do that and, and the movement of that. And, of course, if, if you're floating too fast and the current is dragging it, then, you know, that's another concern that you have to de deal with on that. So the whole key is close your eyes and try to think about as if you were a little fish trying to get away, what would it look like? And if you ever see them in pictures, they're kind of darting around and moving around. And that's what you got to try to do, impart some motion to the fly. As a comedian, I was, I was awful at impersonation, so there's no way I'm going to be able to do that with a fish. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard one, too, because it's, it's not even a human, right? You're going to have to do a whole different thing. They don't even can make I, noises, really. Yeah. Can I ask you, Stan, because I never get an opportunity to ask a world-class uh, expert on this kind of thing. If someone was willing to pay, pay for your trip anywhere for a week, to fish, what, where would you go and what kind of fish would you go for? Like, what, what, what does that dream look like for you? Oh, oh, that's easy for me. I'd go down to the Keys and try to fish for tarpon. Okay. Mm. Just unbelievably fish to catch on, on a fly. I mean, I've, I've caught some small ones, uh, but nothing really, really big. First of all, they're hard as heck to hook uh, because their mouths are like steel and you have to have an unbelievably sharp hook and they can be as frustrating as hell to try to catch because they will ignore even the most well-presented fly. So tarpon are probably the one species that I think I would like to try to almost catch all the time. Wow. Hey, I have a question about that because one of the things you just said made me think, my whole, every experience I've had fishing was making it as easy as possible to catch a fish, right? Like I am not in any way trying to make it trickier for myself. In that instance, you say you would rather go try to catch a fish that is more difficult to catch. Does that mean that you feel like your skills are, are that high that you're you can challenge yourself that much? Or what's what, well, what's, what's the story there? <laughs> you know, there, there's an old saying that uh, ten percent of, of people catch ninety percent of the fish. Okay, and I'm probably the other ninety uh, percent that don't catch a lot of fish. But, but the key is, is that after a while, if, you, if you're involved in any type of fishing, you want to challenge yourself a little bit more. And uh, sure, you can catch trout anywhere. I used to take my son to local trout farms. You know, he'd, he'd put a little uh, bait on, and he wasn't fly fishing at the time. He was just a little, little tight. And he would catch trout. Okay, nothing wrong with that. He got him interested in fishing. But I think as most people, as they get into fishing, they want to challenge themselves. And sure, they're the hardest to catch, but that makes it more rewarding, at least from my perspective anyway. And I think maybe from Paul's perspective, catching steelhead. Although I, when you mentioned the keys, I, I, bonefish is there on the list too. Maybe right at, right at number two. Yeah, there you go. Another hard fish to catch. What's yep. the deal with the bonefish? I don't even know what that kind of fish is. I've never heard of it before. Is it a, is it a, is it a warm water fish? It's, it's like, in I believe, in the Florida Keys as well. My friends go to Brazil every year, uh, oh, wow. I believe, for bonefish, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, they're beautiful. They're like ghosts. They're silver ghosts in the water. I've only read, and I've seen videos, uh, they're like pound for pound one of the hardest fighters. It's dynamic. You're in the water. <laughs> you're like it's a, it's, mm. And it's not like a, it's not one of those British Columbia situations where you're freezing. It's like, it looks very romantic. <laughs> uh, and they fight. <laughs> 
and you take a great picture, uh, you hold it close to the lens, and it looks, it's always, tarpon looks impossible to me. So that's not yeah. even on my list. That's, uh, the bonefish is the one my well, friends have done. But bonefish uh, are really hard to catch too. I mean, they, they can be really, really spooky, as you know. Uh, and uh, uh, that is, it's optimal what's called sight casting, being able to see them. But they can be difficult to see because they can blend in with the coral in the bottom. And again, observation comes in. Take your time, uh, look around, see what's happening. But this is uh, where what? people are getting uh, more into fly, uh, saltwater fly fishing. I was telling Paul, you know, when we fly fishing got started you know, hundreds of years ago in England and in Europe, it was all uh, freshwater. But now, you know, people are targeting big species from uh, tuna all the way on to uh, marlin. Is it because it's like more? you feel directly connected to the experience? Do you feel like, is that why people are wanting to catch those kind of fish on flies? Like, is it a more, I, I, I don't want to get a meta, meta here, but is it like more, is it more spiritual to catch on a, on a fly fishing rod? Well, there's two schools of thought of this. One people will believe that if you're fishing for, let's say a, a marlin or something like that, it's not really fly fishing because in that case, you're not doing any casting. All you're doing is dropping a big fly in the water after the right. uh, boat has stopped to try to tease it on in. And so, you know, you're using a fly, you're using a fly rod, but are you really, is it truly fly fishing? And there's a mm. debate among a lot of people about that. I didn't even know you could catch a marlin on a fly rod. Those must be some of the strongest fly rods that have ever, <laughs> that exist, yeah. right? They've yeah, got to be they're, like, they're, like giant circles of, of something. That that they are. I mean, they're, they're, they're getting up to. Uh, Paul was mentioning he got a, a five weight and so forth, and he used a bigger one for steelhead. But you're getting up to the 13 weights and and, and that. They don't mean a lot uh, right now to most people. Uh, but yeah, they're really really big. And of course, this is another aspect of fly fishing. The technology has increased so greatly that uh, the rods now are made up of material, the space age material, graphite, boron, that type of stuff that is not only lightweight, but is also very, very strong and able to handle those kind of fish. Well, we should probably wrap up pretty quick. Paul, you have anything else you want to ask about? Uh, no, just to, <laughs> I just wanted to share with uh, Stan that I, I've, I've recently got into, and I'm, first of all, I'm glad my wife's not going to listen to this because the thing you said about <laughs> gear, get the cheapest gear. I don't want her to know that because I, I bought myself <laughs> one of those weight rods, right? The lightest rod you can get because we have some very aggressive smaller trout near my house, but they're only like, you know, like two pounds, well, one, one yeah. pound, but they're really yeah. aggressive. And so doing with the ought weight is just perfect for me. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a little harder to cast. And I'm glad you're nodding, Stan, because my wife thought it was a waste of money, but I'm telling <laughs> her, it makes a difference. You, you, you can never have enough uh, rods and so forth, as far as I'm concerned, because they, they meet different situations uh, that, that can evolve. And that's the whole key. You know, you can have a, a backpack rod that you go back that breaks up into four pieces. Well, it's easy to take, and then you can go anywhere you want. Uh, you can take it on a plane or whatever. So fly fishing has evolved in, in many, many different ways from what it, what it first started as, as being what most people thought a snobberish activity uh, until now. Almost anyone can get involved if they're interested in it, which makes it, which makes it fun, I think. Yeah. How I, would you I, sell can it? We use, can oh, we use that clip okay. as, as your promo, Gavin? Because my wife will hear that part. Yeah. We need a rod for every situation. <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll, anybody who's a fly fisher can use that for their spouse, right? <laughs> like, hey, everybody. Um, last thing, Stan, before you go about this, 
if you were going to sell fly fishing on somebody who has never done it before, what's the takeaway? What, why would you do it? And maybe Paul actually answer that question as well. Okay, because I, I think it, it is simply a, another way to fish and another skill to develop if you're interested in fishing. Uh, as I think as I said before, it brings you closer to nature in terms of understanding not only the insects, but the flow of the stream, understanding currents, understanding eddies, understanding current seams and pools and so forth. So again, I refer to it as more of a thinking man's way of catching fish because you're mm. actively involved. Great. Paul, what about you? What, how do you sell it? Well, Stan has already answered a uh, big chunk of it which, which earlier about you sort of have to observe something that you mm -hmm. take for granted or something that I take for granted. I'd look at the river. I walk by rivers all the time. But something about fly fishing makes me not just observe the river. It makes me feel the relationship I have to the river. Uh, not think about it so much, but I feel that relationship and it puts me in perspective. And so when I catch something in a river, especially with something that I've tied myself, I don't feel so much like I've tricked a part of nature. I feel like I've just joined a, a part of that chain. I've become, I don't know, a, a, just just a, a part of that chain and I'm grateful for it. I, when I do the catch and release and they, whenever they swim away with that, with that kick out of my hand, out of my palm and on their own power, I just feel this, this incredible gratefulness that I get to be a nobody in this river of beings that don't know who yeah. the hell I am and don't care. Like yeah, I'm part yeah, of that I, again. I, I, yeah, again, I can't quote him directly. Henry David Thoreau basically said it wasn't always the fish that the angler was after. And mm -hmm. what he was meaning is that he, they wanted to be experienced the nature and being in the water itself. That was great. That's awesome. Well, thank yeah. you both for being here. Oh, oh Stan, yeah, before pleasure. we go. Oh yeah, absolutely. Before we go, I asked my guests, my expert guests, if there's something, this is a surprise question. Is there something that you're way too interested in right now outside of fishing? Is there something you can't get out of your head, like a like a mini obsession or something you're passionate about right now? Uh, nothing that I can really think of offhand uh, besides that. Fishing is one of my passions, to be honest with you. <laughs> no kidding, right? You write the book yeah. about it? It's all good. Uh, okay, well, thank you so much for being here, Stan. And uh, Paul, thank you for being here as well. I had a great time. This was really interesting. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to go and spend some time fly fishing myself now, I think. You guys have both Absolutely. convinced me. Thank you, guys. Okay, everybody, that's another show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to the Gregory Brothers for our theme song. Thank you to Eric Johnson for helping produce this podcast. And most of all, thank to you for listening. Please rate the show on iTunes. Um, audience has been going up, which is nice. It's obviously... Nice to have people listen, but I would love to hear from you. Please at me at Twitter, at Gavin Purcell, and we'll see you next time.